Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. And for me, you know, I think the growth of our news and current affairs is critical to NITV, why we existed in the first place, particularly the push from the Royal Commission for Aboriginal deaths in custody for our communities to be able to see themselves portrayed in a positive light but also be in control of their own messaging and their own um, media is really important to get our news and current affairs to this point. In our own words, centering First Nations voices in the national truth-telling process. This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt. Community broadcasting has a strong tradition of presenting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices to mainstream audiences. Since the early 1980s, community radio stations have played a pivotal role in challenging racism in the media while providing a platform for First Nations perspectives and stories to be told. Although Impaja had been established in Alice Springs, it wasn't until 2007 that the country's first Indigenous-dedicated national television channel hit the airwaves. NITV began broadcasting in July that year, available on the pay TV platforms Foxtel, Ostar and Optus. Five years later, in 2012, National Indigenous Television was launched as part of SBS on the free-to-air channel 34. Tonight, I'm joined by three strong trailblazing women who've made a mark on Indigenous media and Australian media more broadly. Joining me are host of Living Black, Carla Grant, NITV's channel manager, Tanya Denning-Orman, and Rachel Hocking, co-host of The Point. Each of you is so well known, particularly to Indigenous audiences, but I wanted to start by asking you about your background. So maybe you first, Carla, where did you grow up and what were your greatest influences in shaping your worldview? Well, uh, thanks for having us, Larissa. It's great to be with you. I grew up in Adelaide, born and raised in Adelaide, but my family are from the Northern Territory. There aren't a mob from um, Central Australia. But yeah, I grew up in Adelaide, went to school there and after year 12, went to Canberra and went to university there and that's where I started my media career. And then I was there for a few years and then moved to Sydney and started working at SBS in 1995. So this is my 25th year working there. So it's a huge milestone. But yeah, growing up, I guess, you know, my mum, she raised my sister and I as a single, you know, mum on a pension. So, you know, she played a big role in my life and my auntie, who was like a second mum to me, my my mum's sister. So um, I had some really strong women who raised me and gave me the values that I have today. And also my grandfather, my mum's dad, he came down from the Northern Territory with my nan and I spent a lot of time with him when I was growing up in Adelaide. So he really taught me the importance of education. He'd always say to me, girl, you've got to get a good education. So he'd put those H's in front of the E's. And um, yeah, so he'd always tell me, you've got to get a good education if you want to do well in life. So he really instilled a lot of important values that I hold today. What was it about media that drew you towards that? Because obviously you could have done a range of things, but this has been a passion. It seems like it was a passion fairly early on for you. Yeah, I guess, you know, growing up in Adelaide, it was quite tough. I faced a lot of racism when I was going to school and so did my family. You know, I saw I witnessed a lot of things that happened to my family Things like my uncles getting picked up by the police just for simply walking along the streets for no reason at all. So I guess I saw a lot of stuff and it really made me sort of hungry to be able to, I guess, report on these things and shine a light on them and to make a difference, to do something about that. So growing up, that was my aim. I wanted to be a reporter and to shine a light on these injustices that are faced by our people. You became one of the earliest, most visible Indigenous faces on television. For a lot of us, you were like the first person that we got to know. What was it like to be one of the first Indigenous women doing this groundbreaking work, becoming such a role model in a time when there was so little space for Indigenous people? Mm, that's a hard question, Larissa, because I don't really think of myself as you know the first person to do whatever. You know, I was just out there doing what I was doing. 
But yeah, when I started out, there weren't that many Aboriginal people on television as journalists. I mean, myself and, and you know, my ex-husband, Stan Grant, we were probably one of the first, you know, journalists. I mean, we had John Newfong earlier and he was a real role model for us as well, but he came a long way before us. And then there were a few others around and, of course, we had, you know, a number of our actors on television like Justine Saunders and Uncle Bob Mazza, Gary Foley and people like that. But in terms of doing, you know, what we do as, as journalists and in news and current affairs, we were, yeah, probably one of the first around to do what we're doing. So I guess it's been really important to ensure that we have a voice. And, yeah, for me, it's always been ensuring that we have a voice and a platform for our people to speak about the issues that matter to them. Tanya, where did you grow up and, and what shaped your values? Oh, hi. Yes, I grew up on Cunaloo country in central Queensland. It's a mining town, Blackwater, but I was born on Durumble, which is Rockhampton. And, you know, my community, however, are Hopevale, um, the Kupiyamajan, and also Berry, which is around Bowen, um, with most of my family ties back into the missions of Warabinda and Palm Island and Hopevale. So, um, and then growing up on the railway reserve in Blackwater. So that was, you know, an interesting time in the 80s. I thought it was the centre of the universe. But it's definitely a time where I wasn't seeing the community I was growing up in represented on screen. And I think the lack of representation or the questioning, it was just really interesting going to school in Queensland in the 80s and having teachers have certain perceptions and questions when I went to school was very different from what I was experiencing when I was going home. And, you know, I learned really early on about how influential the media was to people's opinions and their lack of understanding of Australian history. Um, You know, I don't really recall being taken aside by my family in the sense that, you know, every day we were learning something. My grandfather particularly was really influential on my life. But I guess similar to Carla, my um, mothers and my aunties also, you know, delivered a degree of um, resilience and strength and I guess some weird determination to think I could actually get out of this small town and get myself into the ABC was my aspiration to become a journalist. And I ended up getting into the ABC after a lot of knocking on the door and a lot of rejects and ended up freelancing and doing stuff for free. Um, and and I, in fact, I remember meeting Carla back in 1997. I was doing work experience with Carla at SBS and was in absolute awe of the experience at the time, which was really influential to me to see the fact of seeing someone like Carla that I could actually be like her. And it really wasn't until I got myself to Sydney in some weird sort of trajectory out of um, central Queensland and to actually believe I could actually do a hell of a lot in this industry. Before that, I think it was just some sort of fierce determination to think I could change the world as you do when you're a lot younger. And, um, you know, I had that aspiration, particularly at the time I felt ABC was that place where I could influence people's decisions. And, yeah, that's what's helped shape me and get me to where I am today. I think all of us working in media feel we've followed Carla's footsteps in some way, but you have in many very important ways, shaped a very different path for yourself. And you are now leading NITV as station manager, but effectively their CEO. And that responsibility of leading the Indigenous broadcaster is no small thing. How did you come from thinking of yourself as a journalist to really taking on a much larger management corporate visionary role? Well, I think I thought it was just going to be a part-time moment in my history and I'm still there clinging to it. I think from my journalism career, I went into documentary and filmmaking, so I wanted to be an independent. And, you know, back when NITV was being established, you know, after the sale of Telstra in 2006, there was that opportunity. I was actually overseas and had come back and, you know, this channel was starting and I was asked to be a part of, it. I went in as a commissioning editor initially and produced the first hours of its moments in 2007. 
I remember it so distinctly because it came at a time, it was a year of the intervention into the Northern Territory. And it was also a time where, you know, we had decades of trying to build and have this opportunity where Indigenous people could own and control and have a national footprint in the Australian media landscape. So there was a lot of, you know, expectations on this, our shoulders as a team. And there was also, you know, with our sector, our film and uh, independent and our journalism sector had a lot of expectations on this little old channel. And, you know, I think for me, first of all, the opportunity to have a regular gig as an independent back in, you know, 2007 was a really alluring offer and I thought okay it'd be great to get to understand broadcasting I had worked at that point 10 years I'd been working as either a journalist or a producer and an independent and really wanted to understand broadcasting and you know this was an opportunity for me to understand that mechanism and so I commissioned for the channel and it was a really steep learning curve for me but one that despite the challenges, you know, there was a lot of concern from particularly our communities and our sector, but also every minute and every moment or every hour that we continue to stay on air, I could see and feel the potential that feel the um, change from more and more people seeing themselves on screen. It was really quite, and I'm thinking about it now, I remember our opening packages was, you know, there's Wesley Enoch talking about let's do an Aboriginal Big Brother and instead of voting people out, we'll vote them in until, the, you know, cheekily having a go at the government saying until it gets shut down. And, you know, but also a Black Wiggles or a Black Neighbours, as such was our dream and aspiration back then. And here we had that opportunity. And for me, despite the fact that we launched NITV Limited at a time where it didn't have that continuity to stay available for every Australian because we had no access as a free-to-air broadcaster. You know, and federal governments, both sides of parliament, made it quite clear that they weren't going to support a third public broadcaster. So it was quite a interesting time to take a leap of faith to be a part of something that really a lot of people thought wouldn't have a future. But, you know, I guess my feeling was the longer we were there and the more that people stayed with us, we got stronger and we continued to grow. And yeah, we made a lot of mistakes, but I think for me, it was important that we didn't repeat mistakes. And for me, the longer we stayed there, the more opportunities our media industry changed. We had more players entering the market. It just got more and more exciting for me. And I guess my little um, aspirations of actually creating the stories and being a journalist or filmmaker got overtaken by this pathway I never expected to be in a position of empowerment and management and getting to shape a media business in a now what I perceive as a global market opportunity for Indigenous storytelling. Rachel Hocking, where did you grow up and what were your greatest influences? Uh, Larissa, thanks so much for having me on, first of all. And I just want to acknowledge that I'm among three black women, including yourself, Larissa, who really do inspire me. And I think my generation of young black women, and that is something that I hold with me every single day and something that I'm incredibly grateful for. When you ask where I grew up, that's a, it's a tricky question because I, I was on the road a lot as a kid, a transient family. And I actually uh, was on the phone to my mum recently and we decided to go through and actually count where I'd been because I wanted to chronologically pinpoint at what points I'd lived in which states. And we counted as many as 30 houses, I think. It was, it was a lot. And that was across Queensland, Victoria. I was born in Melbourne. And then many parts of the Northern Territory, which is where my Walpri connections come from. And so I spent a bit of time in a remote community called Lajumano, which is where my grandmother is from. We actually had part of our education there as well, which meant that I had a bilingual education for a couple of years of my life in Walpri and in English. We were educated wherever we went, and that sometimes meant doing maths and English exercises in the back of our troopie, driving up the Stuart Highway. But our parents always valued that education and they always had the radio playing 
if it wasn't listening to Lazimani Teenage Bands, then we had PAW or Walpree Media, as they used to be known, now poor. We'd have Karma on or the ABC. So I was always surrounded by ideas and people talking and we weren't just exposed to one worldview because we were always living in really different parts of this country, including at one point I was up on Thursday Island for about six months where my nana was doing a teaching stint. And so this exposure, I think at a really young age, sort of made me very resilient and made me very curious. I really liked talking to people and I really liked telling stories. So I think my parents were moving around so much as a kid because while I think some people might find it difficult, it made me, I think, pretty resilient and able to adapt to change very quickly. And was media something that you were naturally drawn to from that or did you have other things that you wanted to do? I mean, it sounds like you could have done anything and your parents would have supported you to do anything. So how did you end up on on that path? Yeah, you're right. My parents would have supported anything I wanted to do. I I wasn't born and raised thinking that I was going to be a journalist or in the media at all, actually. I just liked to write. And so I thought that I was going to be writing books of some kind. I thought maybe I'd write children's stories, young adult novels. I loved sci-fi and fantasy and I liked creating different worlds. I was also really into acting and drama. So I wasn't really sure where I was going to go, but I was a very studious kid. I loved school and I took it very seriously. We moved to Melbourne eventually for my high schooling and I got really into drama there and I did a little bit of writing for our student newsletter but it wasn't in the back of my head that I was going to go into journalism. I ended up applying for journalism despite all that and got into a course in Melbourne which was highly regarded at the time and I thought well I'll give this a crack even though I had a lot of imposter syndrome back then and didn't think that I had any of the credentials to go into this course because I'd never worked in a newsroom for work experience. I think I just did my work experience at the local library Um, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my career so I did my first year of journalism and sort of fell in love with the idea of telling our stories via the only subject that wasn't journalism related. I was doing Indigenous policy in my first year of university and a lot of the things I was already aware of from conversations I had with my family just became heightened and I kind of, I started to realise that there was so much I still didn't know. And if I didn't know it and I was in a black family that talked about issues a lot, then there's a lot of other people out there who definitely didn't know what was going on in this country. And I felt this fire kind of lit in me. I got very angry at university. It's sort of like my um, radical period, I like to call it. And I started to consume a lot of black media. So in the Nagara Willem Center, the Aboriginal Center at RMIT University, they'd always have the crew mail and I'd be reading that. I'd be watching NITV. I remember the first time I ever watched Awaken and it was an NITV forum on constitutional change. Stan Grant was hosting it with some pretty impressive blackfellas in the audience who some I'd heard of, some I hadn't. And it was the first time that I'd heard a conversation about constitutional change in this country actually reflect the nuance that I was hearing when I talked to the community because every time I read about it in mainstream newspapers or heard on the radio, it just felt so simplified. And I thought, wow, there is a way to do journalism about black issues in this country that actually reflects how they're being talked about in community. And the difference was is that conversation was controlled by blackfellas. And so I had all of a sudden this drive, this will to you know, get me into NITV at all costs. And so that's sort of how I started forming my path. And I freelanced a lot at the Crew Mail. I started producing part-time at ABC Radio. And in my final year of university, I applied for the cadetship with SBS and NITV and was really lucky to get in. And it's during that period that I really started to hone my, my journalism. And it was because of the women who are on this panel, Carla Grant and Tanya were there from day one, as well as Malandiri McCarthy, who was working in our newsroom as our senior journalist at the time. I was mentored by Stan Grant for a short period when he launched our program, The Point, which I now, luckily enough, get to co-host. 
and journalists like Danny Teese Johnson, who was a senior journal at the time and really helped instill in me the importance of staying connected to our community, but also holding on to my strong journalistic values at the same time. Well, it does sound like it was much more talent than just luck along the way. Carla, you've had (laughs) such an extraordinary career across various media, and I was just wondering, when you look back, what are the things that you're proudest of? It's very easy for somebody to read your CV and point things out, but when you think of the things that were personally the most important to you, what are your career highlights? Oh, gosh, that's another hard question, Larissa. Like I said before, I've been doing this for a long time now and 25 years at SBS and I guess nearly 30 years in the industry, showing my age now. I was going to say, you started when you were 12, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I did. (laughs) Yeah, so it's been a long time and I've covered so many stories and interviewed so many people. And just to sort of pinpoint one particular piece of work is really difficult, I think, for me. In recent years, I've been doing a lot of conversational interviews, one-on-ones with so many different people where I get to talk in depth with people about a range of issues and really get to probe and question them about really finding out about them and what makes them tick and and what their views are on various things. So, um, you know, I've spoken to world leaders like the Dalai Lama, Kevin Rudd, Malcolm Turnbull, you know, I recently spoke with Pat Dodson, Noel Pearson, Rachel Perkins is another person who, you know, is really very inspirational. So I've spoken to people from politicians through to sports people and musicians. So it's really hard to pinpoint sort of one particular piece of work that I'm proud of, but I've just found that I've really found a place in in doing these these conversations. It's really, over the years, I think I've really honed my skills in that sort of one-on-one conversational interview style. So, yeah, I think I'm I'm really proud of those interviews and, you know, what I can draw out of people and, and what people can take away, you know, from those conversations. It does seem to be a form that you're particularly skilled at, but I imagine a lot of it has to do with how much the people you're interviewing trust you and the rapport you get. But when you're delving into a story, what are the things that really draw you to it? What are the things you find most interesting in a story or in a person that you're interviewing? I guess I like to find out things that they haven't spoken about before. And that can be really difficult when you're interviewing someone because, you know, you can do your research and then they may have done a hundred other interviews And so, you know, they could be saying the same thing to everyone else. So the skill is to really find something that they haven't spoken about before. And, you know, for some reason, I seem to be able to draw out these things from people. I guess it comes with experience and the trust and respect that people have for you when you've been doing it for this long. So people really seem to trust me with their stories. So, you know, I've been able to make people cry. And if you can make people cry, you're doing a good job. It's like I don't want to make people cry. but No, producers um, yeah, love but, it, don't they? <laughs> yeah, but they love it. Yeah, it's good television. <laughs> so if you can do that, you, you're doing pretty well. If you can really get that emotion out of people. Rachel, what about you? What draws you to a story? Oh, many, many things, Larissa. I like telling humans. I mean, every story is a human story. And every story that we cover at NITV, certainly, because I think it's about making sure that you're not just reporting on an issue in such a broad way that you tune people out. You need to humanize stories and give them a face and give them a heart. And so, interestingly, like some of the biggest stories that I've worked on or some of the stories that have had the biggest impact on me are ones that I've been pretty close to personally. And I think that's something that you realise early on as a black journalist that at some point in your career, if you're reporting on Indigenous affairs as a black woman, I'm definitely going to come into contact with stories that are closer to me than others because our communities not huge. We obviously spread right across this country from Torres Strait all the way down to uh, South Australia and Pilbara up in WA, but we're pretty small in the scheme of things, only 3% of the population. And along the way, I've reported on stories where I've known people quite personally. Last year, I was contacted at the beginning of the year by a friend of mine, Merrin, who had actually reported on her wedding a few years ago 
to another friend of mine, Glenn Atkinson. And the reason we reported on it, because we were looking for a positive story about stolen generations. And it might sound like a weird thing, but a lot of the stories we try to do at NITV either are solutions-based, and so we're not just reporting on something negative that's happened in our community without offering a way forward. Or we try to shine a light on how, despite the trauma that we all experience, that there are really beautiful things that we live through and experience. And so the fact that these two stolen generation survivors were getting married, we thought it was pretty beautiful. And so we took a camera along to their wedding and uh, Michael Long was there, a few other big names were there and it was really beautiful. I ended up becoming friends with both Marion and Glenn after that experience. Marion is an Arinda woman, so from Central Desert, and Glenn is the Yorta Yorta man from Victoria. Uh, stayed in touch with them over the years and Marion rang me early last year to tell me that Glenn had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And the reason she was calling was not just to tell me that as a friend, but to also tell me that they'd decided to fast track his application for compensation. So when Glenn was stolen, he was put in a children's home in Victoria where he suffered abuse and he was sexually abused. So at the time, there was no national compensation scheme for stolen generation survivors. There still isn't, but there had been one announced in New South Wales. There was no compensation scheme for stolen generation survivors in Victoria at the time. But Glenn was eligible for compensation through the National Redress Scheme for Survivors of Institutional Child Sex Abuse. And when he received his terminal diagnosis, they thought, well, we'd started the application, they'd had a few hurdles and they thought we have to get this through because he only had so long and that's what he wanted. That's what he thought justice would look like. And so she asked me if I could help tell their story again to put pressure on the National Redress Scheme to fast track his application. And so we told his story again and this time with a few other layers, we talked about the scheme and, and the long waiting times that people had been experiencing, the fact that there had already been people who had died before they had received compensation. And so the, the story highlighted a lot of flaws in the system and it, and it became a really big story, but it was also a very, very personal story. And ultimately, last year in May, Glenn ended up passing and he received a phone call just hours before that his application for redress had been successful. And so that story sort of culminated in this really sad event, which we reported on, but also just as a, as a friend, I was really impacted by it. And I ended up reading the eulogy at Glenn's funeral a couple of weeks after reporting on that final moment. So for me, I would say that's probably been the story that outside of reporting on stories that impact the Walbury community, that one has had a really big impact on me and it's kind of been ongoing because it raised a lot of issues which we still report on, including this week I've been reporting on the redress scheme once again and some of the flaws that have been picked up by community. So definitely the stories that are probably more personal than some journalists ever get to report on, which I think is, like I said, I think it's the reality of being a black journalist in this country. That's an amazing, powerful story you were able to give voice to. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. Tonight we're bringing you a focus on Aboriginal women breaking down barriers in the media sector. Recent calls for a national process of truth-telling around our shared history have highlighted the need for First Nations voices in that process. Whether in news and current affairs or documentary and film, my guests this evening have each contributed to raising the profile and visibility of community-controlled media. Joining me in the conversation this evening are host of Living Black, Carla Grant, NITV's channel manager, Tanya Denning-Orman, and Rachel Hocking, co-host of The Point. Tanya, earlier on you spoke a little bit about the genesis of NITV and what it was like working there up until now and how you came to be leading NITV. And I was just wondering now, when you look forward, what is your vision for NITV into the future? 
big thing, Clarissa, big thing. I, I think, didn't um, expect yeah, anything less. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just listening to Rach and Carla, like I just feel so proud over the fact that these stories are being told and, you know, possibly had this channel not existed, we may not have that continued investigations or continued storytelling and growth of our storytellers the way we've had. So I think before I look forward, it's just incredible the thinking, looking back on what we have achieved and how far we've come in, in this period of time. And for me, you know, I think the growth of our news and current affairs is critical to NITV, why we existed in the first place, particularly the push from the Royal Commission for Aboriginal deaths in custody for people to be able to, for our communities to be able to see themselves portrayed in a positive light, but also be in control of their own messaging and their own um, media is really important to get our news and current affairs to this point. And then growing our children's content. And, you know, to this day, I'm so proud of that moment, walking up on that stage for the Logie Award for our little Jane because, and the thing, you know, this little old channel is now creating such content that is in that scripted um, animation space and children's space that's so groundbreaking as well. And for me, the next sort of pushes for the channel really is creating what those that have gone before us but having more of it. So the success that ABC is doing with Mystery Road and, you know, earlier in the year with the total control from Rachel Perkins' production company um, is just phenomenal. And for me, growing our scripted slate now and what we announced an initiative earlier this year with Screen Australia to start that process. So I know we will be creating our continuous drama series soon and, you know, it may not be immediately, but we will be getting that. And that's just really exciting for me, the fact that we're now in this stable, as much as public broadcasting is in a stable way, but we've really cemented our unique positioning in the marketplace as a really authentic Indigenous-authored organisation that is not only important for our First Nations people, but a lot of Australians are connecting with us and wanting us. And I think that's really exciting in the sense of the potential of how we can really shift the narrative of Australians and our future in general for the next generation and schools and how what's been taught in schools and the like. So I'm thinking back to that girl in Blackwater and seeing that impact of what media could play, I just really know that the power of this story and the power of the narrative in the hands of Indigenous filmmakers or journalists is something that is really going to shift the dial in this country. So I'm really excited for our future. We've got more investment in content than ever. We haven't received additional funds from federal government, but the longer we've stayed on air, we've been able to commercialise, we've been able to partner with um, institutions in a way that we could never before. So our business methodology has really grown and, you know, the more content we have, the more opportunity, more employment for our sector as well. So even though I've been there from the very beginning, I'm still as excited as I was from day one. And also I think that moment that really helped define my passion in NITV was being able to launch it as a free-to-air channel back in 2012, but we did it outside of Mutajulu, the community where the intervention had started. And to think about the challenges we were launching in NITV back in 2007 as a narrowcaster and to be able to have that healing, I guess, as a media, to be able to launch as a free-to-air channel for every Australian out of the heartland of storytelling just out there near Uluru is just something I will always take with me and feel absolutely humbled and privileged that I've had this opportunity to be a part of the sector in this way. All three of you have made really compelling cases for why a service like NITV is important for the stories it tells, the talent it brings through, the way it can showcase our stars. And yet, as you've alluded to, NITV isn't funded to the extent that other broadcasters have been. 
What are the challenges in that space for you and how have you gotten around them when you've been able to actually achieve so much with what is actually very, very little? I think it's in our DNA. It's that resilience that we have. Where there's a will, there's a way. You know, also taking the lead from the mob in Central Australia with that public policy document, the white paper, the Aboriginal invention of television, where they did pirate TV. That back then, they couldn't get the waves that have ownership of their own media, so they, you know, created it. And I think we've had that drive ever since. It's with us as a sector, you know, and we do stand on the shoulders of remote media organisations, um, you know, decades in the making is what we'd say with NITV. And every moment we're on air, the stronger we become and there is opportunities and we are a business opportunity for people. It's not about, you know, this is the right thing to do. It's We have major brands wanting to be attached to us because of what we do, but also how we do it. And I think, you know, whether or not governments see that as, you know, a place to put the money in, where we're focused is where the commercial opportunities. And I think that's the beauty of being administered under the SDS Act. We can commercialise, so we can do our wheeling and dealing. And, you know, what we're finding is people really, or businesses want to be attached to that brand. And we've worked really hard to ensure that we don't move away from our integrity and, you know, we stay in our lane of who we are and keep that perspective of, you know, ensuring it's Indigenous-owned voices, owned controlled media. So anything we commission has to be two out of three key creatives. It has to be authentic. And that means we're providing something unique in the marketplace. And the more we're able to have consistency of content, the more audiences are coming to us. And, you know, our stories, you know, we're the world's oldest continuous storyteller. And, you know, there are so many stories that many Australians are wanting. And, look, I would love to have more of the funds, but it might be a bit slower for us while we're still building but we'll get there in the end I definitely know that so as you know I mentioned there was a big sort of shadow over NITV back in the day we're now 13 we're teenagers and that that attitude as well um, our identity is really being shaped now so you know I think it's been really important to cement our difference in the marketplace and not just be a content aggregator so our brand NITV was really important it could have sort of gone any which way when we moved the business into SBS and it was really important to ensure that we told our story while we were growing as well. So, you know, that I think is a really important option that we can provide to the marketplace as well. So it is challenging. We're not ABC, we're not SBS, but because we are who we are, we can work with the sector in a way that I think we couldn't if we were, you know, consumed by either broadcasters and you know we work with this we want to work with the other players as well and we have done with the Fox Sports and the likes as well so that's really exciting for us. I'm struck hearing you talk about something my, one of my uncles used to say which is if you want something hard done ask a black woman to do it and finally <laughs> tonight the restrictions imposed due to COVID-19 have just fundamentally changed how we're living our lives. And I was just wondering if you could share with us what its greatest impact has been on you, but also something you've learnt about yourself during this time. And I might start with you, Rachel. Yeah, it's definitely been a really strange period, hey? I think uh, the biggest impact on me has been, on a personal level, just the the distance from family. So I live in Sydney on Gadigal land and most of my family is in Melbourne or the Northern Territory. I do have a brother in Sydney who actually works at NITV, so very grateful to have him during this period. But I only moved back to Sydney in February this year and not being able to go home to see all my other siblings, the six of us uh, who live in Melbourne, to see my mum who's had health issues this year to see my aunties in the Northern Territory. It's been really hard. And so I think on a personal level, I've just, you know, missed them a lot. In terms of one thing I've learned about myself or discovered about myself during this time, I think it's just to be very grateful for what I do have and, and the fact that 
for my situation, I'm isolating in a safe house with people that I actually really like and get along with. I have an internet connection, I have a phone connection, and I have a steady job. I also have a support network that's been checking in on me and who I've been reaching out to as well. So even though I was already aware of this, I think it's brought home the importance of being aware of the privileges that I have in my situation and what I can use those privileges for to help others. So reaching out to family who don't have the best situation at home, checking in on them, family who I know who are struggling with their mental health, especially my mates who've been really struggling with their mental health during this time, and just looking at the different ways as a community we can support each other, which I think that's also been really cool. I mean, I already knew our community was deadly, uh, but we we definitely have shone during this period in supporting one another. If you just look at Facebook, there's like a million pages now where the mob are getting together and talking about everything from sharing the dinners they've been cooking each night to posting weaving classes, you know, done in, in their back room. And I think it's really nice to see how much we all care about each other and our overall well-being because we know that the well-being of the individuals is dependent on the well-being of our entire community. And so, yeah, it's it's been a tough period, but definitely not as tough as some have had it. And I've just had to keep that in mind constantly and also hold on to the responsibility that I have as a reporter and a presenter to tell the stories of the people in our community and the many communities across this country that aren't being supported and where there are gaps in the system which are being exposed, that we are making sure we are on the front foot of reporting on them and getting that information out to community so that we fulfil our role as black media. What about you, Tanya? Biggest change to your life and something you've learnt about yourself? Yeah, no, um, I think now that we're sort of how many weeks in, the, the reality of what's just happened, I think when COVID first hit, uh, we were so intensely busy. I didn't really have time to think about anything else but ensuring that we could deliver the channel. In fact, we grew our news and current affairs service. We had weekly shows relying on the football, the league and the AFL and, you know, how we managed to keep that and adjust that and keep, the team focused and delivering the channel, you know, in our case scenarios because we just didn't know what was going to happen with COVID. So I think those first few weeks was so intense. Um, but I think that was a bit of the old journalist in me enjoyed the adrenaline from it as well. If I could be as bold to say there was a bit of enjoyment in it. It was a bit, you know, it's something that we really love problem solving, I think, at NITV and making sure that we could not just do it, but do it really well. I think that's through us, all the team in the channel. So, and, you know, I'm really proud of how they did deliver the content, particularly out to our remote communities as well. And those even, you know, where the biggest populations are in the city on how to handle and what to do with COVID. So the team really responded and did a fantastic job. So that was really busy, really hectic. But sort of looking back now and during that time, you know, my family as well in the north of Queensland and the reality of that inability to get over to Queensland, I thought, oh, I need a passport or even if I had a way, I wasn't able to get home. And that, you know, every now and again got into my head and knowing my parents were so elderly and that sort of every now and again would wash over you. So, but I think as I've always done, you know, having to have left home at 20 was keeping busy. And, you know, I think that's what a lot of people tend to do, keep busy and then you don't have to overthink things, I guess. But now we're in this new norm and that reality and is setting in as well. And, you know, what I feel that I've really learned about myself is the more I've slowed down now, the more I'm getting done. And I think living in this city and, you know, I think about my year last year, I travelled almost every week nationally, internationally, and just doing so much, going so fast on that hamster wheel and realising, you know, there is, different ways we can do things and keep connected and I like to think about the positive of this period and for me I've really you know spending time with my little family here in Sydney and not 
you know, being a mum, staying at home, doing homeschooling and, you know, those joys as well. You know, that's always been um, an interesting thing. I've been a constant working mum. So to be able to have spent more time just looking after myself and my core family unit has been a really important experience. And I think a great learning of myself in the sense that we're not, here forever and you know this is really important to take every day for what it gives you and not you know when you're deadline driven world not constantly looking at the next deadline so COVID in its weird way has taught me a lot more about myself and what I have in my so many years on this earth already so yeah it's been a really interesting time and you know I am grateful for the fact that it has stopped me and it did make me Low. So that was something really important, I think, for a lot of women, mothers in my position. And Carla, what about you? How have the restrictions fundamentally changed what you're doing, how you're living your life, and what have you discovered about yourself? Yeah, Larissa, yeah, it has been a really challenging time for all of us. I think the major impact for me during this time has been not being able to see my mum because she's actually in uh, one of the aged care homes here in Sydney where um, a number of elderly passed away from COVID-19. So it was a really, it's been a very worrying time actually having her there and and, um, the whole place has been in lockdown. It's still in pretty much in lockdown at the moment and I haven't been able to see her except from quite a large distance away. So that's been really hard for myself and for my kids. They haven't been able to see their nan. So, you know, we've only been able to see her from yeah, from a distance, as I said. So hopefully, you know, when things calm down and things get a bit better, we'll be able to actually, you know, see her properly and sit down with her and give her a hug and a kiss because, you know, we just really miss her. So, But thankfully, she's actually been quite well through all of this, you know, so we're we're really, really grateful for that. But yeah, the social isolation, I think, has been really, really hard for everyone and probably for a a lot of family and a lot of friends who, you know, are living by themselves. It's been a time to sort of, you know, check up on them and make sure that their, you know, mental health and well-being is, you know, that they're okay. And yeah, so I think we've all learned a lot about ourselves and, you know, just reaching out to people and to, like Tanya was saying, to slow down because we all get consumed with our lives and our work and, you know, last year I think I travelled overseas three or four times. So while my two adult children lived with me, you know, I hardly ever saw them last year. So, you know, during this time we've been able to actually see each other every day and, and sit down and talk to each other and, you know, play games, get out the old Monopoly set and things like that, play Scrabble. And it's really taught me a lot about just, yeah, slowing down and taking more time out for you know, to be with family and I guess also just being disciplined as well to work from home because that can be hard for some people. It could be easy just to sort of, you know, sleep in and stay in bed for a while and and then get up and, you know, sort of mosey along. But when you're working from home, you really do have to be disciplined and motivated. So I think I've learned that about myself as well, that I can be really disciplined and, you know, we're in the middle of a series at the moment as well for Living Black. So it's meant that the show has to go on. You know, we've had to keep the channel going, as Tanya said. So the show does go on and, and it has throughout all of this and we've managed to get our programs to air, thankfully, so that we're still meeting the needs of our communities and, as you know, Rachel said, you know, informing our communities about what's happening and, and keeping them up to date and keeping, you know, our programs on air. So, yeah, it's been a really strange time, but we are all in this together and we're all getting through it together. So hopefully there's better times ahead. Well, each of you individually are trailblazing, inspiring and awesome together. What a powerhouse. Thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out this evening. What a privilege to have all three of you here. Thank you so much. much. My guests this evening have been host of Living Black, Carla Grant, NITV's channel manager, Tanya Denning-Orman, and Rachel Hocking, co-host of The Point. To take us out this evening, let's hear from another deadly woman. This track is by Murray singer Rochelle Pitt and is called Too Deadly, My Sister. Oh, I love you, sister girl. 
show for this week. Join us again next week when we take a critical look at the Northern Territory intervention 13 years on. The latest evaluation report by researchers at Monash University has found the discriminatory strategy has largely failed targeted communities. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.